Investor intelligence provides general information only. You should consider seeking independent advice to see how this information relates to your unique circumstances. Please refer to the terms and conditions available at investorintelligence.com.au for more. Welcome to this week's episode of Investor Intelligence, your weekly podcast on all things investment, hosted by me, Jacob Kearns. Often when we talk about good debt versus bad debt, it's usually in the context of bad debt and how to reduce it. But for this week's episode, I have with me the General Manager of Crown Money Management, Chelsea Burton, and she's going to help us navigate how we can best use good debt to grow our portfolios and achieve our goals. Welcome back to the podcast, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. Firstly, let's start with an easy one. If we want to take on debt, we need to borrow money. What is a borrowing capacity and how is it calculated? So borrowing capacity is basically how much you can borrow and it's basically calculated by how much you earn versus how much you spend and what you can afford in repayments with the difference between the two. And does this differ between, say, going to a bank for your borrowing capacity versus other types of lenders? It does. Uh, I mean, majority of lending is done through banks or financial institutions of some sort, and they all have different ways of calculating borrowing capacity. For example, some of them will consider health insurance payments as a fixed commitment which they expense differently to the ones who consider it as part of your everyday living expenses. Um, They all have a different minimum for what everyday living expenses are considered. Uh, They all have a different way of buffering existing debt or dealing with current rental incomes. Uh, They all have different ways of dealing with proposed rental incomes and they have different ways of dealing with overtime bonuses and, and other forms of penalties that you receive from income. Okay. And why might that be? Is it their various risk tolerances? Is it how they see things? Yeah. uh, Banks have different risk tolerances. uh, Your bigger banks will have a lower risk tolerance. So your borrowing capacities generally will come back lower with them. Um, There are other banks who charge higher interest rates, but have a higher risk tolerance as a result. So your borrowing capacity with them will come in higher. And the difference can be three or 400,000. It can be quite significant. Mm. Oh, wow. So how how can borrowing money and using leverage be an effective tool to grow your wealth? So if you consider uh, buying an investment, so let's say you've got $100,000 and you buy $100,000 worth of shares and that share portfolio gives you a 4% rental return or 4% investment return, you're getting 4% on the $100,000 that you invested. If you buy a property or do something else that requires borrowing to leverage your income, then the 100000 that you're investing might buy you a $500,000 property. So the same 4% return would be based on the $500,000 investment, not the 100000 that you invested. So you're able to get a bigger return on the same money. Yeah. So you're earning money on your initial money as well as you know the bank or the lender that you're borrowing off. Exactly. Hopefully we're all investing in lower risk assets if we're leveraging that much money. But I mean, what's the trade-off if you are borrowing to invest? 
you've obviously got a limit on how much you can borrow and that's based on how much debt you can service on your income. So it might be that, you know, if you've got a smaller income, the amount of debt you can service is going to be less. So no matter how much money you've got saved, you don't have the ability to borrow as as big a multiple of that. And does borrowing money affect your cash flow? Absolutely. If you have a property that earns uh, an amount of rent and the loan repayment is higher than the rent, then you have a negative cash flow for that property. And then the property is also going to have other expenses as well. So every time you buy a property, in theory, even though on paper it could be positively geared, you might be earning an income once you get all your tax deductions back, every month you're going to be outlaying money for that property. Yeah, okay. And so for for someone who's investing in property, why would they want to uh, take a more debt, take a more risk, lower their cash flow? Why is that an enticing option for them? Because at the end of the day, the goal of investing is to make money. So the property that you buy isn't going to stay at the same value forever. It's going to increase in value. And that increase in value is doesn't cost you anything. It just happens. The rent's going to increase. So while the, your cash flow might be affected in the short term, in the long term, it's actually going to be of benefit because you'll be making money off that property. Um, and you'll be growing your asset value. So at the end of the day, when you sell that property, you're going to make money off of it. Mm. Yeah, okay. And so do you have any strategies for investors who uh, want to increase their borrowing capacity to get into their maybe second, third or fourth property quicker? Yeah, increasing your borrowing capacity comes with, you've got two options. You can either increase your income or you can decrease your debt. So if you've got any debts that are not good debts, so let's say car loans, credit cards, debt on your house, Paying that off as quickly as possible and getting rid of it is going to increase your borrowing capacity. Any investment, any debt that's on an investment property is going to be tax deductible, so it doesn't have the same negative impact as an owner-occupied home loan does. And decreasing debt in general is quite a lot easier than increasing income because increasing income means either starting a business or going to your employer and asking for a significant pay rise, which in the current economy isn't always possible. Okay. And does your spending as well as debts impact your borrowing capacity as well? Absolutely. And things like uh, paying private school fees have a very big impact on uh, borrowing capacity. If you really like to bet on the horses, that's going to have a negative effect on your borrowing capacity. Things like life insurance coming out of your own income does as well. And then if you're buying things that you can't afford which means that you've got credit card debt or personal loan debt, that's going to have a massive impact too. So buying in cash is key. Mm. Yeah, okay. You sort of touched on it a little bit just then, but how much does buying your home impact your borrowing capacity? Quite significantly. If you've got, let's say, a million-dollar borrowing capacity and you buy a home and you take a $500,000 debt out on that, we know you've only got a $500,000 borrowing capacity. So it's basically dollar for dollar. Mm. But obviously on the home, you're not getting a rental income, so that means that you you know, that debt isn't negatively geared, you're not getting any income off of it. So that would have a bigger impact than buying, say, two $500,000 investment properties for the same million dollars. Okay. And around that, so if someone was to come to you and they have an existing borrowing capacity, do you have any advice for how to best utilise that borrowing capacity? So I guess at the end of the day, it depends on what that person's goals are. But if the goal is to create wealth through investment property, then it's going to be buying properties that are going to help them 
over time to increase their cash flow. So borrowing, having debt on investment properties has a negative impact, um, <clears throat> not just because it, it decreases your borrowing capacity by the amount that you're actually borrowing, but the banks buffer the interest rate that you're paying by 25 3%. So when you look at, well, on paper, I'm only losing $50 a week, you're actually not in the bank size because they only consider 80% of the rent and they consider the interest plus 3% as your repayment. So, and then you've got expenses associated to that property as well. So, um, yeah, so the best way of, of utilising the borrowing capacity is to buy properties that are going to, over time, have increases in rent so that that can increase your cash flow. In terms of cash flow, do you do you typically advise against or for or against interest only versus interest and principal loans, or again, does it depend? It depends um, on what you've got going on outside of the investment property. So, if it's an owner occupied property, you want to get rid of that debt. So, principal and interest payments are the way to go. If you're buying an investment property, then it depends on what else you've got. So, if you've got personal debt. I'd be paying interest only on the investment because you want to get rid of your personal debt because that's affecting your borrowing capacity the most. But having said that, if you're getting an interest only loan for the next one, the bank doesn't consider that over a 30 year loan term. They consider it over a 25 year loan term, minusing out the interest only period. So it has a bigger impact on your borrowing capacity for the next property. But if you were to go principal and interest on the investment property and you've got other debts as well, then your cash flow is going to be seriously impacted because you've got an extra three, four, five hundred dollars a month coming out on principal repayments for the investment property too. So if you are growing a portfolio, particularly in the earlier stages when you're trying to get as many properties as you can, do you often advise for interest only loans? Yeah, the interest only loans. And the main reason for that is when you're paying a principal and interest loan, the amount that you're paying off the principal that's part of your minimum monthly repayment, you can't access that again. So if you have an interest-only loan and you put you know $1,000 a month extra onto that loan, the $1,000 a month is available in redraw and you can pull it back out. So it's kind of savings. Mm. Whereas if you're paying you know $300 a month in principal repayments, the only way to access that is by increasing your loan again. So you actually have to apply to the bank to get that money back. It's not available to you. Right. Okay. Yeah. So in accumulation phase, when you're building your portfolio, interest only is generally the best way to go because it gives you access to more cash to to buy the next one. And then once you've decided you have enough properties, that's when you want to start paying principal and interest and start paying things off. Okay. And at what stage would an investor want to do that? I mean, generally. So the bank, when you apply for a loan, you get a five-year interest only term. As a, I mean, you can get 10 with some banks. Some banks only go to three years, but in general, it's a five-year interest-only okay. term. After that, the loan switches to principal and interest unless you refinance. So if you can't refinance at that time or you don't want to refinance at that time, that's when you would start paying off the principal. Ideally, though, it would be after you pay off any personal debt. So if you've got a home loan yourself, you want to keep your investments interest-only and pay off the home loan quickly. So that all your available cash can go onto the home and you're not paying anything off the investments, which is where your tax deductible debt is. That's your good debt. So get rid of bad debt first, then pay off the good debt. And then after that, you want to do it in a way that is cash flow 
beneficial for you. So rather than, you know, if you've got five investment properties and you decide to start paying all five of them off at once, that's going to have a very big impact on your repayments each month. So you probably look at starting to pay one of them off first. Yeah, so pay one off, then pay the next one off and kind of snowball it that way. So going back to bad debts, is there any bad debts that are worse than others or what order would you sort of recommend people pay off these debts? So from a psychological perspective, it's best to pay them off smallest to biggest because the smallest ones are easier to pay off um, and it gives you a, a psychological boost that you, you're actually heading in the right direction and then you've got money from that minimum repayment to pay off the next one. So that's normally how I would do it. But from a borrowing capacity perspective, credit cards have the biggest impact and then personal loans and then mortgages. So when when you are structuring someone's finances, do you work with, is it exclusively investors or do you work with people buying their homes as well? No, I work with people buying their homes as well. And so how does that differ between structuring someone's finances who's just buying their home and someone who's planning to build up a property portfolio as well? So if the client is just looking to buy a home, then it's a nice, simple loan application process. There's one property, you want a principal and interest loan, there's there's no rent, there's no really extraneous expenses there. It's very simple. So basically, we would do one of two things, depending on what the client wants. Uh, we can go with a bank that offers a cheap home loan that fits the borrowing capacity of the client, or we can... Uh, structure it in a way where we can help them pay their loan off as quickly as possible. And so Crown Money is really good at helping people to do that. We have our own home loan product designed around assisting people to get their home loan paid off in, you know, 10 to 15 years or, or, you know, up to half the time of a standard bank loan. Or with a normal bank, we can set it over a 30-year term and the client just pays it off as they go. If the client's looking at buying investment properties, then realistically, if they're buying their house first, there's not a great deal of difference aside from they may have more of a desire to pay that mortgage down more quickly. So a product that will help them to do that. And then when you're buying the investment properties, it's setting those, you know, with a different bank on an interest only loan so that they can manage their cash flow and pay down their house. And how does that work between different lenders and different products? How does one loan help you pay off your mortgage quicker than another? So banks like to get as much interest out of you as possible. So they tend to front load your home loan with interest. So if you look at a standard amortization calculator, you don't really start getting into the principal on your home until you've had that loan for 15 years. Oh, wow. So basically, most of the interest that you're going to pay is paid in the first 15 years, and then you start really getting into the principal. Uh, With the Crown Money Home Loan product, we sort of start you at that 15-year mark. So we help you through quite a managed program to uh, pay as much as you possibly can off that home loan by, you know, helping you budget and helping you to manage your money and and providing financial coaching. What sort of advice and and tips would you give around someone if they were to come to you for money management advice? So, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to put as much money towards that home loan as possible. So your financial coach would talk to you about uh, making good financial choices, maybe, you know, the difference between buying a new car versus buying a second-hand car. Look at how much you're spending in groceries. We give you a a budget each week that, um, you know, for your food, fuel and fun and sort of help you to consider the financial impact on your goal of paying off your home of each of your financial choices. 
your income's banked into your home loan, so you're paying everything you possibly can off your home and saving as much interest because banks calculate interest daily. So the more money you can have sitting in your home loan at any one time, the less interest you're going to pay. And so when you're paying less interest, it means more of your minimum repayment is going towards your principal. And that helps you to bring the home loan down more quickly. That makes sense. I mean, I get someone would want to pay their their home down quicker and that product, yeah, it really seems great to me. But someone is just looking at building a portfolio first, maybe they're rent vesting. How would the loan structure that you would tailor for them differ between, you know, different lenders and, and really thinking about that future, the future of properties? So if the client's looking at buying one or two investment properties, there's not a huge amount that's different to just buying a house. I mean, at the end of the day, you're buying an investment property. The goal is going to be to pay it off because you you need that income as a passive income in order to retire early, which is the end goal of investing. If you're rent vesting, your rent is going towards paying off someone else's mortgage. And that's fine. That's great because you're not, you don't have any bad debt and the money that you're, well, your investment property is, is getting you rent and your interest is tax deductible. So keeping that debt is a positive as well. But then as you start to increase the number of investment properties that you want to buy, each of those debts is going to have a negative impact on you. So starting to pay things off is going to be more helpful. One of the things that a lot of banks and brokers do is they cross securitize loans. And basically what that means is... If you buy a house and you get a mortgage and then you go and buy a second house and you get a mortgage, the bank set it up as one loan over the two properties Mm. or it'd be two loan accounts but both secured on the two properties. Having the loans with separate, their own separate loans means that if you want to in the future sell to buy something new or, you know, for any other reason, Selling one property doesn't impact the loan on the other, whereas whereas if they're cross-securitized, it does. Are there any negatives to cross-securitizing your assets? Yeah, cross-securitizing can create a lot of problems. It makes it easier from the bank's perspective because they've got more security for a loan. But from a logistical perspective, when you're if you've got one property that goes up in value and you've got one that goes down in value, and then you want to release equity for your next investment property... The property that goes down in value, if it's cross-securitized with the one that's gone up in value, is going to have a negative impact on how much you can borrow because, you know, if one's gone up in value 100000 you could borrow 80000 against that. But if the other one's gone down 50000 now you can, that, that 50000 negative comes off your 100000 gain, so now you can only borrow 40000 Right. So keeping them uncrossed is the best way of being able to buy the next property and the next property because that way one going down in value doesn't impact the other. Yeah, okay. If you are if you aren't cross securitizing your investment properties, can you still go to the same lender or do they do the loans need to be with different lenders? No, you can still go to the same lender. You just have to set them up uh, differently. Mm-hmm. So rather than having all of the properties securing all of the loans, each property has its own loan. And it can get a little bit more messy in your bank accounts because let's say you've got, um, you know, one property that you bought for $500,000 with a $400,000 loan and then you're buying another property for $500,000 and you want to use equity in the first property. If you're not cross-securitizing them, you would then have, so you you would need a loan, an equity release loan against the existing property, which would then pay the deposit and costs on the new one. So effectively, you'll have two loans against that property, but for different purposes, and then one loan against the new property. And then as you build your portfolio, those additional loans, there can be quite a few of them. 
Whereas if you're cross-securitizing, you would have one loan for each property and it's quite neat. But the neatness comes with some downsides when it comes to selling the properties or when it comes to releasing equity, if anything's gone down in value or not increased as quickly as it should have. So keeping them uncrossed is the best option to continue building your portfolio. Okay. In terms of lenders, is the cheaper lender always the best or how do you how do you pick between lenders? Cheaper lenders tend to have the desire to take on less risk. So their borrowing capacities tend to be smaller. So when you're buying investment properties, you start with the cheap lenders and then you have to build up to the more expensive ones who will give you a bigger borrowing capacity. Okay. And so why why would you start at the cheaper ones? Is it because of cash flow? Well, if you're going for a standard interest-only loan, there's no need to pay more interest than you have to. So yeah, in terms of cash flow, a cheaper interest rate is yeah. going to mean less outlay for you each month. But then uh, lenders that charge higher interest rates quite often will take on more risk. So the more investment properties you buy and the closer you get to the cap of your borrowing capacity, the higher risk you are. So that's when you start paying the higher interest rates. It doesn't offer you any other benefits other than a higher borrowing capacity. So you wouldn't pay them to start off with. Right. Are there any other considerations, not just borrowing capacity, but anything else when you are looking at that, building the portfolio later down at the later properties? Yeah. So the banks with higher interest rates service your loans differently as well. They don't tend to add buffers to the interest rate that you're paying. So they they have a better borrowing capacity for that reason. Some of the other lenders, they... they just the way they look at investment property debt or self-employed income can be very different and much more amenable to someone's situation. So, you know, because risk doesn't have to be loan size, it could be your income type. Okay. So, for example, if you are self-employed and you've had a, a bad year last year and this year's a lot better, the type of lending that you want to do is different and, and not all of the cheaper banks will do that. So, um, for example, uh, you might need a low doc loan, which basically means we don't show the bank financials, we get a verification from the accountant on how much you earn. Right. Right. And so that will increase your borrowing capacity, but there's only a handful of lenders that will actually do that. And because it's a higher risk, they charge a higher interest rate. Right. How much higher? It depends. It can be one or two percent. Okay, I guess for the for the investor, for the person applying for the loan, can anyone apply for that? I know you said only certain lenders provide that, but can anyone apply? No. So if you've got a PAYG income, then your income is your income, and there's no there's you can't apply for a low doc loan. If you're self employed, you can, but you don't necessarily want to. Okay. So because the interest rate's high, so if you don't need to don't apply for it. But also too, it is dependent on what your account will verify. So if you earn 60,000 a year self-employed and you need 120,000, your account's not going to verify that. So, you know, there's no point in going for a low doc loan because you don't have that income and you might as well go for a full doc at cheaper interest rate. Mm. It's more for if, you know, you've got a business that is growing quite rapidly or you've had some big change in your business that has created more income quite rapidly, then that's when you would use it. Yeah, okay. Or if you take money in cash and you don't declare a yep. lot. Okay. So do you, do you have any other final advice for any strategies in terms of finance structures, loan structures, or anything that we've discussed? Realistically, everything is uh, subjective and it's dependent on your personal circumstances. Uh, not all 
banks, if you go directly to a bank, have your best interest at heart. I mean, I've never heard a bank tell you to go to a different bank. Mortgage brokers have a good range of different products available and different lenders that don't have branch access. So going to a mortgage broker to determine what's going to be best for you is very, very handy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we'll be sure to put your your link for those who want to reach out and get in contact with with you you guys over at Crown Crown Money Management. But who who would be best to sort of take you up on that? Is there any sort of client that you work with specifically? I, I work with everybody that needs a home. Okay, loan. so just just home first loans, home yeah. buyers. Yeah, first. Oh yeah, just just home loans, just home loans. So um, yeah, but first home buyers, investors, owner occupied, refinancing. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All of that. Cool. Well, final question to you, Chelsea. Do you have a favorite book? I do. I do. Rich Dad, Poor Dad by <laughs> Kiyosaki. You, you are the fourth, <laughs> I think, yeah, fourth person on this podcast to recommend that book to me. <laughs> it's a great read. It gives you a completely different idea of how money mm, works. Okay. I've read his other book, Cashflow Quadrant. That was, that was yes. the first book I ever read, actually. So, it, yeah, it was great to sort of get that mindset is uh have you read that one no i haven't okay. read that one i'm just wondering how they differ because yeah uh, literally so many people i've played the oh, game yeah, i've got the game as well yeah the game's fun yeah it, <laughs> it is good it's it fun. Is have good. you played there's two versions have you played the advanced version no yeah. okay oh that's good yeah i'll definitely have to um, put that one on my list seeing as so many people have recommended yeah. it to me <laughs> all right chelsea well, thanks um so much for your time today and um yeah it's been great my pleasure thanks so much cool thank you If you found this episode or any of our episodes helpful, please make sure to share and leave a rating to help us reach more people on their investing journeys. And of course, subscribe to be notified when new episodes drop. Make sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Investor Intelligence Podcast. You can find links to our other socials in the show notes, including a link to the Property Mentors weekly blog. If you're ready to get your property portfolio in shape for financial freedom, check out Luke's latest book, Property Fit. You can get yourself a copy at www.propertyfitbook.com.au.